My name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Walking with a limp like, will I ever run? Once again, or is this it? Am I forever done? Living in the hospital was never fun. Some people were cool, but not everyone. Welcome, everybody. It's another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And my compadre, co-writer, Pat Piccarelli is on the phone with us and on television and whatever device you're listening from. Yeah, we're everywhere. You can't everywhere. escape us. Uh, hi, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, today, we're going to uh, be discussing Angie Dickinson, uh, an actress, a uh, very famous actress, but she has been retired for a while. She's 91 years old now. But uh, what we have to say about her is uh, quite relevant and has been uh, a recent number of interviews regarding her. Uh, she came out of uh, retirement to give interviews. She, was, she wasn't doing that for many, many years. So what you're going to hear are clips from various shows. Uh, and uh, these shows came from Fox uh, Sunday morning, which is on CBS on Sunday mornings. I know, hard to believe. And a website, uh, a, rather a YouTube channel called Factsverse. So that's where these clips come from. So we'll be playing the portions of these clips and then we'll be stopping the clips and we're going to comment on what we've heard. And of course, uh, uh, Gianni, who was uh, very active in those days in those circles, will have things to add that uh, people don't generally know or know at all. So that said, let's get moving. Angie Dickinson needs no introduction in the world of classic Hollywood. With her stunning looks and undeniable talent, this iconic actress has graced the silver screen for decades, leaving audiences spellbound with every performance. So, who was the love of Angie Dickinson's life? The silver screen for decades, leaving audiences spellbound with life. The answer may surprise you. Facts First presents Angie Dickinson confesses he was the love of her life. Okay. Uh, Angie Dickinson, uh, the majority of, of her career was the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and a small portion of the 80s when she appeared in a television series. What do you know about her? Well, I, I actually know when she was introduced in the late 50s, early 60s, when I got involved in Las Vegas, and it was during the time I was traveling the United States, getting people like different unions and organized crime families to back John F. Kennedy who was the senator at that time out of New York to become president of the United States. And this was a very hard job for me to do. You can imagine <laughs> I had so much fun. It was ridiculous. What but did you do? I wound up, well, I did that during the week. And then Costello told me and Maya Lansky to go to the Sands hotel, the Cobra room. And I, I already knew Frank by that time from the Cobra in New York and everybody else that was hanging out there. And every Friday night, Saturday, I'd go to two shows a night at 8 and 12 o'clock midnight in the Copa Room while the Rat Pack was performing. And Senator John F. Kennedy would join me at the table. And at, after that, we would go to Jack Entrada's house, which is on the property, because he was running the Copa Room. He, he left New York City and came out to Vegas to run that Copa Room. And uh, it would be party time. Now, everybody knew me as the kid. I was like a fly on the wall. 
I don't think Angie Dickinson would even remember me other than the kid, because at the time I was in my late teens and I was only there to report to Costello and Maya Lansky on what was going on as far as the progress and Frank saying he could control the senator. So, well, look, you also uh, mentioned in our, in our first book, uh, the mafia being what it is, backstabbing organization that Costello also wanted to know if anybody was saying anything that he wasn't aware of. And like you said, you're the fly in the wall. Who's going to pay attention to you? I mean, you could overhear what's going on. So that was part of your job, too. Well, that was all of it, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah. What you just said, that's that was all of it. And they, they basically wanted me to report back on the behavior of Senator John F. Kennedy, which I couldn't understand anyway, but because there were so many things going on at that time that I went back and told him things that he knew what he was doing and I didn't, which we'll get into, I guess, as we get into the uh, to more of the story. But that's when I was introduced to Angie Dickinson. I was introduced to Julia Prowse, Ava Gardner, which, you know, I never met at that time. And um, Marilyn Monroe, I met several times at Tootshaw and saw her there. So these were the ladies that were coming and entertaining the senator to become president. And we all know that eventually it came out that he had a relationship with Marilyn. So and, this hotel, the Sands, yeah. was mob-owned? Oh, definitely. It was mob-controlled and owned. Who owned it? Well, all the people I told you. I mean, they had fronts for it, but basically it was the the syndicate and Costello and and Mylansky, and they had people running it, as we all know later on. That's when Howard Hughes stepped in and put his people in. But up to that point, it was all mob-controlled. You, you also told me something interesting about the cabanas that uh, – were by pool, by poolside, that certain families had certain cabanas, and it, uh, each 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 uh, cabana represented one of the five families. Well, the buildings basically, it was not that just the five families. No, it was territories and crime families throughout the United States. Okay, so they named them after race tracks in those states, so you knew who was staying where. It was very cleverly done. They didn't oh, cool. have cabanas. They were actually buildings. They were see uh, when they built the sands. It was basically two and three story motels surrounding a pool, and then they built the tower later on. But uh, when it first came up, that's what it was, and all of this was under the you know the guidance of the syndicate at that time. Not even uh, the five families in New York didn't. They they had they had aqueduct. That was their building. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. Well, let's uh, let's continue here and see if there's anything else that's interesting you can comment on. From humble beginnings in calm North Dakota, Angie Dickinson has captivated audiences with her remarkable talents for over six decades. Born Angeline Brown in 1931 to Leo Henry Brown and Frederica Hare, Angie was the second of four daughters from a family with deep German roots. Growing up in a Catholic household, Angie attended Bellarmine Jefferson High School in Burbank, California, where she excelled academically and won the sixth annual Bill of Rights Essay Contest at just 15 years old. Initially aspiring to be a writer, her life took a fortuitous turn when she won a beauty contest in 1953. 
She went on to study at Immaculate Heart College and Glendale Community College while working as a secretary at Lockheed Air Terminal in a parts factory. And how does she get in with the Rat Pack? I mean, everybody wanted to be in with the Rat Pack. And for, you know, for, for those of you who don't know what the Rat Pack is, Johnny will explain it. But this was the in crowd, basically. And everybody was, was trying to get in to help their careers, party and all that. So comment on that. Well, it's, it's interesting that you should say that because they they all took a fancy to her. She did a movie with John Wayne that gave her some really recognition. And they were ready to cast Ocean's Eleven, which they were shooting while they were appearing. I don't know where they got the energy, but they would do a show at 8 o'clock, a show at midnight, and then hang out at Jack Atrata's pool till the sun came up. And then they'd go to the film set. But me now being an actor, at that time I couldn't figure out, but being an actor, once you're in those kind of roles, you're spending most of the 10 hours or 12 hours on the set in your trailer waiting to do something. So that's when they caught up on their sleep. I thought they were power people because I'm saying, when do these people sleep? And Angie Dickinson got a part in the movie. And that's how she got so close to everybody at that time. Who was in the rat deck? Excuse me? Who was in the Rat Pack? The Rat Pack at that time was Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, D. Martin, and Frank Sinatra. And that but was the Rat Pack. There was also people that, come, that came and went, didn't they, over the years? Oh, yeah. I mean, they brought people in. and Johnny Carson was in for a minute. I mean, and, and it's funny. Most people don't know this. But you know who created the Rat Pack originally? Who? Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Ow. How did he get involved with these guys? Well, he did it in Beverly Hills, and they took it over. Oh. And uh, so and they took it to a different level, obviously. And then, you know, they did a bunch of films. They did the, the, when Ocean's Eleven was the big movie. And then that was about a heist in Vegas. While the entertainers were performing, they were creating this heist. It was a story within a story. And then they went on to it. I met them all down the Fountain Blue later on. When they did, they were doing Tony Rome. He did three movies as him being a de detective, Tony Rome. So that whole click kept moving, but I mean, he was actually producing them also under his. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I I was young, but I, I I recall seeing Ocean's Eleven many times. I mean, it, it was it was a great movie, uh, but you can tell, and even at that young age, I was like thirteen. Uh, they were, I don't know how much of that movie was ad-libbed. Most but, of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even I, even I could recognize that at 13 years old. But you can tell they, they were just having a ball. And, and in some scenes, they looked a little bleary-eyed, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because, you know, again, as I said, after doing two shows and drinking during those shows, yeah. then we'd all go to Jack, after having some Chinese food or something that we'd have at 2 o'clock in the morning, then we go to Jack and Trotter's house, which is on the property of the Sands Hotel. And he had a swimming pool and they had all Italian cypress around it and basically an anchor fence. And if you were in the know, you knew the code, the, the code to the gate to get in. And I couldn't believe what was going on because all of the stars I mentioned, including the total Rat Pack, was there every night. Dean sometimes would go earlier and go, go up to bed and he, because he played so much golf between all of that besides. And, um, but 
the shenanigans that were going on, I could not believe, you know, I was in my late teens and these people were skinny dipping by two o'clock in the morning. And I'm talking about stallets. <laughs> well, you know, there are some things or, or an incident or two that we mentioned in the book, The Hollywood Godfather, without getting too raunchy about some of the other things that, that they were doing with with drugs oh everything i couldn't i mean imagine i'm sitting there and i know this he's a senator and uh one particular night that i think we we spoke about or touched on gene martin had a tremendous back problem as he did when he was in the army he wore a brace people don't realize he wore a heavy brace and dean introduced him to percadan and to JFK, yeah, and he was taking J. Uh, he was taking Percodam, and then Sammy introduced him to something else, which I'm viewing from across the pool, yeah. and it looked like they were doing a line of salt on Julia <laughs> Krause's belly, and I'm saying, what the heck is this about? Yeah, and Sammy had his little straw, yeah. and the senator about to become president of the United States does a line of it, which I learned the top terminology of the line. And I went back and reported it. And Costello said, what? And obviously, he knew it was cocaine. I thought it was salt. I'm saying, what are these people doing? But I'm, saying, but I'm still also thinking, this guy's going to be the president of the United States. Because he looked up after doing the line and looked at Dean. He said, Dean, this stuff is better than that Procodan you're giving me. And I was like, what the You know, <laughs> cocaine has been around since the, since the 1940s. Uh, mostly used by jazz people, celebrities, uh, people that weren't famous at all. And it's, uh, you know, somebody once said, how, how do you know what I'm trying to think of the exact quote? Oh, you know, you're too rich when you can afford cocaine. You know, I mean, this stuff was expensive uh, compared to other drugs. It was, it, it was uh, back then, even in the 70s, uh, when I became a cop, uh, it, it, it was $100 a gram. And that was a lot of money back then. You know, well, that's so, why I think that that explains why, you know, when Sammy Davis died, he was stone broke. His house was even in the income that he owned. I mean, it was it was a crazy time because, uh, you know, he was definitely the one that was introducing everybody else in the gang to Coke. And I, I can't attest that Sinatra did or anything else. I can only I know what I saw and who who experimented that night. But um, again, I was a fly on the wall watching all this i mean I, I was enamored with it all that i was privileged to this and costello couldn't wait for me to come back on monday mornings to tell him what was going on well you know simmy davis jr flaunted the fact that he was using coke he would he would show off his pinky he had a long nail on one of his pinkies left the right hand i forgot i i saw this on television he was being interviewed and he and he he, he showed this the drug back then while it was illegal didn't have the uh, reputation that it had later on in the years. I went destroyed lives and cartels and people dying. It was a party drug and no one really thought anything about it. So he actually bragged about it. Uh, and he, the word was he had a terrible habit. No, I mean, it was, it was terrible. I mean, it was his first wife and then Altavis was the uh, second wife. And she, I don't know how she put up with it, but it was uh, but I mean, again, to get into that life or that part of their life and be, being 
on the inside at such a young age. It really basically shaped me into knowing what I didn't want to do, and that was drugs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, because I saw how stupid they were and how how, how they carried on later. And they had to get us out, you know. Yeah, and I, I, saw the, I saw the same thing as a police officer. I mean, uh, I, horror stories with people. I, I probably mentioned this on, this on the show a few times, but after doing 230 shows, you know, you forget what you said six, six years ago. But that said, I, I knew quite a few people whose lives were destroyed. And one guy that comes to mind, a stockbroker who I knew very well, worked on Wall Street, had a lot of money, particularly during the boom years of the 80s, early 90s, everybody was rolling in money. 22-year-old kids are making $3 million a year. Anyway, he got to the point where he did, just he, he degenerated, broke, and he all he cared about was coke, lost his family, lost his job, lost his house, lost everything. But he was down to drinking his own urine because there was he figured that when he ran out of blow, that there had to be some coke left in his urine and he would drink it. Oh, my God. And I saw this. And, 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 and five years before, he was... On top of the world, and you yeah. saw him drink his own urine. Oh yeah, he didn't care. Yeah, it was in a in a in a, in a bar we all hung out in. I mean, uh, it's wow. cops, gangsters. They they all they you know back back in that day, uh, New York clubs, bars. Uh, we didn't have uh, on the job I was on and the NYPD. They didn't really have an enforceable rule about consorting. Or being in, in the same place with uh, with uh, criminals, you couldn't go into business with them. You, c- you couldn't do a lot of things, but you were hanging out in the same place. Well, I'm could. sure they would encourage it, actually, because you could find. Well, out no, they, they would encourage it, but they didn't oh. say anything about it. But I mean, I hung out in so many places on the East Side where uh, you know high-ranking gangsters. I I told the story uh, numerous uh, times about Alley Boy Persico finding my gun, oh, my so we don't have to go through that again. But uh, uh, nobody said anything about it. There wasn't anything going on. And these these parties degenerated into into just drunken people high, people drunk. And this guy didn't care. He just give me a cup. He'd whip it out, put it in his cup, and drink it. Jesus. Yeah, he uh, he he had a heart attack at like thirty years old. Wow. Passed away. Uh, but the cocaine uh, isn't physically addictive. It's not like heroin. It's psychologically addictive, and you don't want to live without it. And uh, and he didn't. He died. So anyway, I can I can understand coke, but we're getting off topic here. Let's uh, let's see what else uh, this interview had to say. In 1954, she landed her first acting job in a Warner Brothers movie, and soon became a fixture on anthology TV series throughout the 50s. But it was her breakthrough role in 1956's Gun the Man Down that truly put her on the map, and she solidified her stardom with the Golden Globe Award for New Star of the Year for her performance in 1959's Rio Bravo. That's where she met John Wayne, right? Yep, and that's the movie that Sinatra and all of them saw her in, and that's how she got cast in Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) Yeah, She really really went to a a change during... (laughs) 59 to the 60s well as as we'll see uh shortly she's not at 91 talking about her life uh she's not bashful i mean she talk, she talked about all, all the men she ran through and uh oh she made love to every one of them and they all loved her and she loved them back and and she really wasn't committed to anybody 
other than one guy, which they'll, they will re reveal to us. And I think our audience will be shocked to find out who the love of our life was. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a while. But, you know, talking about the Ocean's Eleven thing, uh, they remade that entire franchise with the, uh, George Clooney and that crew, which, and they were all friends that made that movie. Uh, well, he got the whole same idea. I mean, the producer of that is the same producer, believe it or not, of the original Ocean's Eleven. Did you know that? Well, that movie was produced in 1960. And right. He must have been 118 years old by the time he got involved again. I was oh. there. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, it's, no, no. He's well, only I in mean, his 90s. As a now. producer, he had a I'm beat. saying, the producer. Yeah. Who was it? Do you remember the name? Oh, he was one of the big, the big names at that time, uh, and he was around Sinatra all the time. Oh, anyway, if you think of it later on, jump right in. But right. anyway, uh, uh, that that movie was uh, the one that the Sinatra and the Rat Pack one was so iconic that forty years later they decided they're going to reinvent the franchise. And how many Ocean's Eleven movies have there been? At least four, I'm thinking. I think five or six. Yeah, okay. with George Clooney and them, that crew. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was brilliant to get that, 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 that whole franchise. Yeah, and they all did well, obviously. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep making movies like Fast and the Furious. Anyway, let's continue. Alongside John Wayne and Dean Martin. Throughout the 60s, Angie became one of the most popular leading ladies in Hollywood, appearing in a string of hit films, including Ocean's Eleven, The Sins of Rachel Cade, The Killers, and Point Blank. Her success on the big screen continued throughout the 70s, and she went on to appear in films like Pretty Maids All in a Row, The Outside Man, and Big Bad Mama. But Angie's talents weren't limited to the big screen. She also achieved TV fame as Sergeant Pepper Anderson in the NBC crime series Policewoman, winning a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress for a television series, and receiving three Emmy nominations. I tell you, she was in her 50s then, if you ever saw uh, Policewoman. She looked she pretty good. good looking, man. Oh, no. Yeah, and she kept herself in shape. Well, she she never, you know, she never had children. I mean, she she was she was on a mission and obviously enjoyed a life. I'm I'm anxious to hear and what they're doing with her at 91 and what this memoir is going to be about. Well, I saw the uh, CBS Sunday morning uh, interview, uh, and it's all done over a uh, over a card tape. Whoever's interviewing her, they're playing cards basically. She's 91 years old. Uh, she looks pretty good. I mean, she kept herself well. I mean, she's 91. She's not going to win any beauty contests, but she, she looks good and very sharp. Not, never, not, you know, never lost her intellect, it doesn't seem. Uh, cool. But uh, quite a person. Let's, let's see where this goes here. Her career continued to flourish until 2009 with standout performances in Dress to Kill, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Okay, Dressed to Kill in 1994. So now she's in her 60s. And I don't know if you ever saw Dressed to Kill. It was with uh, Michael Caine and, uh, and her. Those were the two big stars. And it was about a serial killer in Manhattan. Uh, G George Siegel was in it too. Uh, he, he played a uh, uh, mother's boy detective. It's never on television. I don't know why. It was a great movie. I actually saw it in the movies. But she was in her 60s, and I'm looking at a picture of her now in a, in a courtroom scene. I mean, she looks like she's in her early 40s, late 30s. And, you know, you, you can do just so much with makeup, and you either have it or you don't. 
And uh, she's like a Sophia Lauren, not in that same category in the Latin field, but yeah. Angie Dickinson, as you said, I bunked into her in Beverly Hills and all that later on because of the relationships with Sinatra. But uh, she always kept herself really well. I mean, yeah, I'll say. All right, let's continue here. Sabrina paid forward and Big Bad Love. Off screen, Angie's love life was just as captivating. Okay, here we go with the love life. Now, for those of you who are listening, try to keep score. She married football player Gene Dickinson in 1952, but they divorced in 1960. Angie embarked on a passionate affair with Frank Sinatra, whom she met on the set of Ocean's Eleven. She married composer Burt Bacharach in 1965, but their marriage was troubled by their daughter's premature birth and Asperger's syndrome, as well as Bacharach's infidelity, leading to their divorce in 1981. Angie never remarried, but had relationships with a string of famous men, including Johnny Carson, Mickey Mantle, Richard Burton, Dean Martin, Charles Feldman, Larry King, and David Jansen. Now 91 years old, Angie lives in L.A. and remains an influential figure in the entertainment industry. She's been honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and an induction into the Television Hall of Fame. Dickinson's Candid Fox Interview Angie recently opened up... That's a lot of men that she admits to. Uh, I know. <laughs> but by the way, folks, we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, by the way, uh, folks, there's going to be a test. Uh, we're going to see if you remember these names. The, the winner gets to watch next week's episode. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, we, we don't give any money away here. Uh, all right. So now we're going to get into what you uh, uh, teased at at the, at the beginning of the show. Out of all these men, and she had a lot of, lot of A-listers in there, uh, even at this age, at 91, there's one that she never forgot. And we're, we're going to get into that now. And uh, your name is, is, is brought into this interview, so stand by. Angie recently opened up about her love life and relationship with Frank Sinatra in an interview she gave to Fox News. The 91-year-old actress is currently gearing up to present her 1959 film Rio Bravo at the TCM Classic Film Festival this spring. She discussed her experience filming the following major film to include her name, 1960's Ocean's Eleven. According to Dickinson, Frank Sinatra was the love of her life, and the mere thought of him still brings a smile to her face. She spoke highly of his talents as a singer and an actor, and while acknowledging he possessed both good and bad qualities, praised his personality. The two had a close bond and even contemplated marriage in 1964, although Dickinson ultimately decided against it. So she turned him down. Well, yeah, I mean... Um... I can understand why he so he was all over the place, and she was she was a dedicated you know I I find far, uh, foreign women are more dedicated at lovers than American women they they they're, they're too scattered and she wasn't uh, uh, how can I clean it up a, a star yeah. ever as they say in the movie <laughs> she fell in love with Frank and for a lot of reasons which we'll find out <laughs> yeah okay here we go stating that they were content in their relationship without the need for marriage. Furthermore, she expressed admiration for Sinatra's ex-wife, Nancy, who treated her with friendship and respect. You think that's true? Yeah, everybody loved Nancy. But, I mean, you know, so she still screwed her husband. That didn't mean anything, but that's not why she was not going to divorce him. 
Well, yeah. Frank Frank went to Nancy and told Nancy how in love he was to Ava and asked her permission to marry Ava Gardner. That's the kind of relationship he had with his ex-wife. And why did she say every day? What did she say to that? Well, she gave him permission because she wanted him to be happy. And well, they, not, she mothered three kids of his, and she wanted Frank to be happy even then. But he took had, very good care of her. Yeah, but that, that's every guy's dream, you know? <laughs> Ask oh, your yeah. wife if, if it's okay that he sees his girlfriend. Sure, go ahead. Just be home in time. For well, the they were ex-wives already. Well, oh, was his ex-wife that time? Yeah, they were okay. already. Yeah. All right, so here we go again. After discussing her divorce from Burt Bacharach in 1981, Dickinson reflected on her memories of working with Dean Martin and Rio Bravo and how they became close friends. She described him as a funny and kind man who never failed to make her laugh despite his on-screen portrayal of a drunk. So out of all the people that she had uh, a romantic relationship with, she never puts Dean Martin in that light. Well, you know why, and, and, and but I know that they had a relationship in trailers. I know that that, that they, he spoke about it. You know that they, they it's like the same thing they did with Marilyn. When I when I did a, a movie called Lepke with Tony Curtis, he revealed he, he was with Marilyn. Marlon Brando was with Marilyn. Sinatra was with Marilyn. These artists at that time, that's what they what their worth was. Now I'm not saying Angie had basically a low esteem as Malin did, but Angie fell into that thing. I mean, she gave of herself to her friends to say it nicely. <laughs> How come I don't have friends like that? Anyway, we'll get into that later. But well, it, you know, Johnny, it, it, it was also the times. Uh, oh, 60s, yeah. 60s, flower children, free love, everything went. Oh, I, I mean, that was... Uh, it, Nobody frowned was, upon it. Yeah, I mean, even for us peons. I mean, I was having a great time particularly in, in the in the 70s I mean you, nobody cared no, no. nobody cared about anything it's just a, let's go out hook up have a great time only if we only had a time machine but that's a subject for another show all right so she she seems to treat Dean Martin with a little bit more respect uh in, in these interviews she doesn't say anything other than he uh he, he was a good friend uh I wonder why she's doing that. Dean is long gone. Uh, I don't know either. I couldn't say that. Was he really uh, the uh, the uh, drinker he pretended to be? I mean, he oh, that was Dean, part yeah. of his act. He was no. a drunk. Well, it was part of his act. He used it in his act, too. Because, yeah. you know, basically, well, I don't want to bury the guy either. I mean, he's already buried. But he, he was a heavy drinker. And oh, he yeah. used it because... When he goofed on his TV show on NBC, as he was getting later on in years, he put it into the act. That, yeah. So I forgot the lyrics. So what? I'm drunk. <laughs> there you go. That's a good excuse. Uh, okay, let's let's continue. Additionally, she reminisced about John Wayne, another co-star from Rio Bravo, who initially intimidated her on set, but was ultimately supportive and provided her with invaluable advice on acting and handling fame. As far as her career, Dickinson expressed immense gratitude for the opportunities she had and continues to hold a deep passion for acting. Sinatra's Secret So what exactly was it about Sinatra that made him irresistible in the eyes of Angie and the Count? What could it possibly be? Well, let the, let the audience find out. <laughs> I was gonna, I was going to make you say it, but you're not going to do it. All right. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. Let, let them tell you. <laughs> 
besides that, we, we, we had to, we had to, we have to, for those of you who don't know, when you play uh, other people's clips, you have permission to do it, but you can't do it in one steady stream. You have to keep interrupting it. So, but we have at least, at least we have pertinent things to say without just cutting it off. And the countless other ladies who swooned over him. Let's just say Frank had a not so little secret that gave him quite the advantage in the dating world. His captivating persona went beyond his famous blue eyes, especially when it came to seducing women. He was not only a music icon and Hollywood star, but a notorious womanizer. His second wife, Ava Gardner, even went on record to describe his anatomy in explicit terms. According to her, he was exceptionally well endowed. She once even quipped that. Okay, this is a great quote that's coming up from Ava Gardner. And, uh, it, it, it should be etched in stone somewhere. It's funny as hell. But out of his 110-pound frame, 10 pounds of it was dedicated to his manhood. Despite being married with children, Sinatra indulged in his insatiable appetite for women from his early big band days, making his way through Hollywood starlets like Marilyn Monroe, Lana Turner, and Marlene Dietrich, as well as engagements to Lauren Bacall and Juliet Prowse, and a short marriage to Mia Farrow. Sinatra's extraordinary voice and charisma undoubtedly contributed to his success with women. But according to his friend Gianni Russo, his ample endowment left no woman wanting. You used to party with him. Oh, my God, yeah. Hello. <laughs> well, that's how they, I, I don't know where they got that statement from, but I'm glad they did. And they included me in this because uh, to be included, you know, I'm basically... I'm from a total different era. Yeah. And the names that they're associating me with, I got to thank this guy when I see him, whoever he is. Yeah, but, well, like, like I said, this is a combination of three separate interviews and uh, one YouTuber. Uh, uh, the uh, name of the channel is Verse. He put it all together. He puts together sh short clips, uh, short uh, uh, videos, eight to ten minutes uh, usually. He comes up with good stuff. And uh, he 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 makes a lot of mistakes. And uh, in, in this one, I I found one when he talks about uh, 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 Angie's first um, uh, marriage to a uh, a producer named Gene, whatever it was. And they have a picture of him, and the picture is of Gene Hackman. I know, I know. Yeah, that. Do you see that? I'm saying that. I say yeah. he looks exactly like Gene Hackman because that was a picture of Gene Hackman. So yeah. mistakes are made. But we come to you because you're the guy who was there when all this was going on. Uh, well, I, yeah, I was in the swimming pool a lot, and um, it was very funny because, you know, Frank was known for that, being, you know, well hung, as they used to say then. And um, so many women attest to it. And and then he had no problem, like even at the, the Beverly Hills Friars Club one day. And um, Oh, Gianni, let's hold that. Okay. So everybody's going to come back after the commercial we're about to go to. Please. We got to make some money, don't go anywhere, because we do know where you live. We are pleased to announce the publication of a new book series from Gianni Russo and Patrick Piccarelli entitled The Sixth Family. When the alleged daughter of Marilyn Monroe asks for help, Gianni Russo becomes entangled in a web of lies and violence in the search for the late actress's diary. Soon, he is enmeshed in a mystery that involves a presidential candidate, a disgruntled Mafia Copo, a retired NYPD detective, and the past of Mafia boss Frank Costello. 
Russo must race against the clock to stop a hostile reorganization of the American Mafia while trying to stay one step ahead of a faceless killer. While listening to this book, skillfully read by Gianni himself, the listener will have to determine what is true and what is fiction. Or as Gianni says before this epic story begins, this book is a work of fiction, except for the parts that are true. Look out for the second installment of this exciting new series coming in 2023. The Sixth Family. Book One is available now on Amazon.com. All right, coming back. We're at the Friars Club. We're at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills and the little Sinatra trivia. And Milton Berle was the first person I ever heard a celebrity talking about his manhood and the size of it. And they had a contest at the Friars Club in, <laughs> in the steam room. And both of them took it out and laid it on the bench at the first, and they measured it. I couldn't believe this. Two grown guys, they made a bet. Who was bigger? Uh, uh, who won? Or is Milton Ball, Milton Burl by an inch. Oh. Not, <laughs> not not a not a I'm talking yeah. about. They were very well endowed. It's, it was craziness, craziness. I mean, uh, who cares, you know? But if you're gonna, <laughs> no, I mean, it's a fun story. Now here we are yeah, laughing yeah. about it. But I mean, you can imagine while this was going on, I'm saying to myself, they're totally insane. These people, <laughs> you know, there's a, uh, uh, an expression about uh, guys fighting, trying to prove a point, like uh, who, who's going to win the uh, dick measuring contest. Well, they yeah. apparently actually had them. <laughs> oh no, they did. I, I, yeah. I, no, I mean Sinatra was very proud of what he, how he was built, and you know, and especially after golf games and all that, guys would run to the showers just hoping to get a glimpse of him. It was so crazy, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Okay, funny you should bring that up because we're coming to a part here, which is a, a little-known fact about uh, Sinatra and what he had to carry around with. Hold on. Sinatra's valet even revealed in his book that the star had special underwear made to contain and conceal his size in public. Even Sinatra acknowledged his animalistic desires, stating he was just looking to make it with as many women as he could. Three's the charm. The recently published book Sinatra and Me in the Wee Small Hours by Frank's former road manager, Tony Apodisano, is a memoir of the author's friendship and professional relationship with Sinatra. When speaking about Angie Dickinson, Sinatra was quoted in the book as saying she was one of the best lovers he ever had the pleasure of knowing. It's clear that Sinatra's love was fueled by his lust for her, but anyone familiar with Frank knows his carnal passion was never focused on just one person. He reportedly had an insatiable thirst for women, sometimes betting multiple partners a day and frequently several at the same time. According to Apodisano, Sinatra often sought out threesomes and more often than not, these flings would lead him to strike up turbulent relationships that would cause him much hardship and headaches in the long run. Okay, so we've learned a lot of things about some people that we never knew about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to say the least. Uh what do you say we, uh, we, we, we cut this uh, right about 40 minutes and come back with some mail? Whatever you want. But I'm, 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 I'm sitting here with the biggest smile on my face because I had the privilege of traveling with Frank. Yeah. We, we went to the Red Cross Ball each year. 
we stopped uh, in London a lot. And I was there one night when Ava Gardner moved back and uh, she arranged for a party and uh, they all partied together. Frank, Ava, some girls. And he said, you want to come? I said, no, please, I don't want to come along. I, I spent the night with George Rath talking about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, did, did you know this uh, this guy who wrote the book that they were talking about, his manager, his butler? Oh, or I know him 100 years. He, he was a valet. He wasn't his manager. Uh -huh. No, I, I, I'm Tonio. That's what his, his nickname was. No, I mean, he was with Frank, and then when Frank died, he, he went with Don Rickles until Don died. Nice yeah. kid, but, you know, he, I don't know how the book did. You know how, how well it no, did? the book didn't do well. No. no I, 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 I there's there's a, a lot of falsities in it. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's uh, go to the mailbag. I love it. We'll be right back. All right, we're in the mailbag. Uh, right, we have time for a few questions. The first one is to Patrick. I know him. Uh, what is the most uh, strange case? I'm trying to read this. What is the most strange incident you ever had as a private investigator? Well, I'll, I'm assuming you mean what's the strangest case. And I'll, the weirdest thing that ever happened to me, and uh, this is something that I, I will never forget, and you'll understand why when I tell you what it is. It really upset me. Uh, we had just moved to where we are now, Pennsylvania. I've been here 30 years. So I'm saying probably we were living here about a year. And I got contacted by uh, a person who owned a security firm in Pittsburgh. I'm not in Pittsburgh. I'm about an hour and a half away. Uh, and uh, he got my name. And I forgot how. It was lost in time. But would I be interested in buying his security company? Now, he didn't do private investigations. He had security guards. Oh. So, well, I'm willing to talk to anybody. You know, it's, it's a business, and if it seems viable, I'll think about it. Plus, my wife was the controller of a very big uh, security company in, uh, in Manhattan. When she left the company foolishly to marry me and come here, they were uh, they were doing 100,000 hours a month, and that was then. It was a, wow, that's a lot of hours. Yeah. So she she ran it. She 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 controlled it, uh, the controller. So she knew she knows the business. So I said, I don't know a damn thing about this. So I said, let's you and I go down and talk to this guy. So we got down and went to his house and I go into his house and it was in, in an older section of town, well kept house. And he's just he's uh, in a man in the early fifties, I guess. But uh, we come in and it was the middle of the winter. I'll never forget it. And he's sitting in a chair, a flannel shirt, you know, dressed casually, and he's sweating profusely and i just thought that odd i mean the heat wasn't jacked up it was just comfortable but anyway i'm we're there to listen to what he has to say and he's talking about the hours he has a small company he had like uh, uh, ten thousand hours a month uh but like i said my wife knows the business and we figured if this is gonna become a deal we can build it up and trust me not based on what i know so based on what she, what she knew about the business which was a lot so we're talking, talking, and he comes out with a price that I thought was, he was almost giving it away. So I said, why are you selling this so cheaply? And he said, truthfully, I'll give you the business if you'll do me a favor. I think Kill me. Exactly. I Did I tell you this before? No, no. But I, I... The guy 
was asked dying. me to kill him. Yeah. He was dying. And he said, I, I, that's, that, that was the sweating. He was in a lot of pain, apparently. I don't know what he had, probably cancer. And I'm not, you know, caught speechless a lot. <laughs> I mean, I'll always have an answer for something. But uh, I mean, my, my jaw just dropped. I thought he was kidding. That lasted about a second and a half. And he said, it was so sad. He said, I just can't do it. He said, I, I, I just can't do it. And, uh, and I'm, then I'm wondering, how the hell did he get my name? I just moved to the area. Well, I'm, I'm there a year. But, but you know, I the interesting thing in my, my warped mind, even though your wife was there, you could have killed him. She can't testify again. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You, know, you know, I never thought of that. <laughs> and he had the paperwork right there. He said, oh I'm sign this over to you right now. Uh, and I, I just felt so bad for the guy. And I started uh, talking to him like a son, you know, and, uh, we just walked away. Uh, and I, I, I still think about this guy and, you know, people ask me, well, did you ever, did you ever follow up? And I just, I, I couldn't do it. I could not follow up on what became of this guy because my feeling was he found somebody to do it. Wow. And, and, uh, and if it would have been ruled a homicide, I would have heard about it. Because Pittsburgh, it being a city, is like a small town. It's not, it's a, what's termed a big city, but you can walk from one end to the other in 20 minutes. Really, it's, it's not very big at all. And something like that, I would have heard of. So I'm assuming somebody did it and it was wow. deemed a homicide. But that, that's my strangest case. I can't thank you for asking me that. What's his name? John. But it's interesting anyway. Okay. This is from Gina uh, Fujiani. I found your podcast several months ago and I've been listening ever since the first episode. I was somewhere in the middle of season 10 and all of a sudden, uh, now I can't see all episodes. I only see episodes 214 to 219 or just the current episode. What happened? Did I miss something? I was uh, so close to being up to date with the podcast and want to continue where I left off. Uh, please let me know what happened. I had someone else uh, uh, check on their phone to make sure it was just me, but it isn't. Thank you for what you're doing. Love you guys. Okay, what's the date on this? Okay, the second. We, we, could, we could do that later. No, let's not do that. Okay, later. but I, I know what it is. Oh, what is it? Okay, we switched platforms on the day this woman could not find our former episodes. Oh. We went from SoundCloud to Podbean. All the episodes were supposed to have been switched over. Right. Now we know they're not. Well, thank God then for her. What's well, her yeah, name? Gina, thank you so much. Gina, we, we, we thought everything was transferred. Okay. It was supposed to be an automatic switch. Uh, and and it'll, it'll be taken care of, trust me. After this show, we will get on the phone and we know exactly who to call. Uh, but yeah, th I can't thank you enough. Yeah, really, thank you is right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, here's another one. Uh, same thing. Well, I'm glad we get, went to the mailbag and found this out because I, 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 the I, next I, one it seems to be all our mail. Well, what I'm saying though, so we don't. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it, it just was the, the the four emails after that were on the same subject, and we will take care of that. All right, this is from Leonard. Dear Mr. Russo, I'm a huge fan uh, of all you do, and I have some questions. Uh, first, did you know the original owners uh, of the house in Godfather 1? 
Of course. <laughs> of course. I didn't. I knew them through my grandfather. That's how we got up there. That's oh, okay. why I took Al Ruddy up there and uh, who came with us? Also, Great Fredrickson and Gordy Wills. That's who was, it, was it true? There was uh, stories. I don't know if this is a rumor or what. You know, obviously, the man's going to get paid for the use of his house. He only, want, he only wanted $25,000 to replace his roof. Is that true? It's only wanted. And I was I was being standing behind him saying, no, just be quiet. <laughs> what? No, what he just was so happy. Well, well, I mean, in those days, they probably would have gave him like five or six thousand a week, ten thousand a week. And how long was the shoot? Oh, we I were there. Well, well, we had the house available. I forgot we took the grand. We were the wedding was a week along. Then all the other side scenes and all the scenes with Luco Brazzi and all the pickups when he came home from the ambulance. And then, I mean, we were there. He could have made a lot of money. Could have made 100, 150,000, definitely. Oh, well, I guess no, no one talked him out of 25,000, that's for sure. I mean, no. we got away with it. Uh, all right. My father, this is the same email. My father worked for many years as an electrician, TV repairman, et cetera. Uh, were they mobbed up? There's, I think he's talking about the electrical union. Well, I, can't, I can't talk about an electrical union. Every union in New York is mobbed up. That's what I figured, yeah. I love it. They're all mobbed up. Crazy. Uh, does my name, does my father's name ring a bell? Last name is C-I-C-C-O-N-E. Ciccone, I guess it's called. It's pronounced. Okay. Well, we answered that one. I wasn't hanging out with electricians in my in my twenties, believe me. <laughs> uh, I figured, you know, you never know. Uh, okay, there's a couple of accolades. What a great job you're doing! Must meet you in Atlantic City, etc. Well, moving on. Okay, this is from uh, Mac. I enjoyed your book. Uh, a whole lot of life lessons there for sure. If you ever do a, a, a dinner for the boxing club charity, please uh, uh, let me know. We'd love to come. Sounds like it's a, it's a great cause. All right, talking about books, uh, I, I assume he's talking about our first book. Right. Just want to remind uh, our listeners, we do have a second book called The Sixth Family, doing well, but it could do better. Uh, yeah, we, need our, a, we need the same people who bought our first book to buy the second book. book. Well, that was the plan. Uh, <laughs> the, first book, the first book was Johnny's memoir, so obviously it's nonfiction. The Sixth Family is strictly fiction based on truth. So uh, we've gotten uh, accolades. Well, you can just go to Amazon and see all the five-star reviews. It is a talk, good story. Talk, talk about that book, though. Well, give, me, give me the update. When is the audio book coming out on the sixth? Okay, funny you should ask. The audio uh, book was finished uh, two weeks ago. You finished it. And uh, our, our editor, Mike Dell, who we had on the show last week, uh, edited it. And I believe he said it'll be out uh, close to the end of May. Oh, great. Great talking to someone here. The, uh, uh, the, the platform for the book is Audible, uh, audible.com. They're the world's biggest audiobook uh, producers. They are owned by Amazon. Uh, they have to go through it, and they, they, they went through it once already for the technical side of it to see that everything was done correctly, and it was. Uh, now they're going through it for uh, content. They want to see if we're not advocating overthrowing the government, <laughs> you know, things like that. Uh, so everything should fall into place. And the audio book will be out, as I said, probably uh, in a couple of weeks. We will make an announcement uh, everywhere. You will know it. Uh, social media, 
on the show everywhere, so you will know it. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, this is from Chris. Uh, Gianni, can you explain, and he puts this in quote, the so-called, close quote, assassination of Pope Paul I as described by Italian mafia hitman Anthony Rimondi. Well, I don't know Anthony Rimondi, and I don't know what he said, so I can't quote it. But can you uh, impart any facts about whether the Pope was killed or not? I mean, there have been several popes killed, but you never talk about it. It's, it, it, it they're all the assassinations if you you look into it, all done in the Vatican. Yeah, so but, uh, most leave of it up to you. <laughs> most of what you're talking, I'm gonna put you on a spot here. Most of what you're talking about took place many, many years ago. He's talking about the most recent pope that was killed. I know what he's talking about. Okay, so that's all you're going to say. No. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I have right. a good relationship with the Vatican. I'm not going to talk yeah, about my right, podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, but he says the same guy uh, that uh, mentions the Pope things. By the way, I love the podcast. I listen every Wednesday morning. Best wishes to you and Patrick. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right. This, we got some long emails here, and we will just save them. Yeah, for, the for another time. For yeah. at our... Self-imposed. I, I really want to thank all the people who commented on the missing shows because we, we just made this transition what two or three weeks ago, or not even with the show. The, the 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 cutoff was the second of this month, and that's when that first writer said the show's vanished. Okay, good. So uh yeah. Thank you all for that. Whoever wrote in for that, thank you so much. Because yeah, we would never know. I'm gonna take care of that in the next 10 minutes. Uh, okay, then. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back next week with some more interesting stories. Keep the cards and letters coming. Pat, okay. have a great weekend. You too, Johnny. And to everybody, have a good weekend. Bye-bye. And that was that. And I'll be back. Thank you for tuning no in to the no Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact no Gianni Russo or Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments through the contact the section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob in Hollywood as well as answers to your messages. My kids still can't believe I sat with a saint. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all, you know, celebrities, world leaders, icons, who knows what's next for me. I'll never get too old to have a little fun, come on, I'm Gianni Russo, a genuine one of a kind, what a ride it's been, this life of mine, and I ain't done yet, I'll be back, until next time, and that was that. Was 
It was a very good year It was a very good year For small town girls And soft summer nights We'd hide from the light On the village green When I was seventeen I didn't mind waiting 